But there's no debate about killing children. And our view was, and that's my position, it's never changed. And my view was, and my wife and I talked about it a lot, if you can instill in kids that obvious truth, you are not God, therefore you're not allowed to kill people. That child, if he believes that, will wind up in pretty much the right place. That is foundational. Hi again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Narrative. Mike Andrews, Aaron Bear, David Mahan with social distancing in full effect here in the studio this today. This episode is brought to you by DayQuil. <laughs> Aaron and David are on the quill train as we speak. There is illness running amok in the CCV family. Ladies and gentlemen, please pray for us. It, has been, it has yeah. been a rough week health-wise for the CCV staff, but nothing's going to stop us from recording The Narrative. We're, we're powering through and I am keeping my distance from That's the right. two of you. <laughs> hey, just a programming note for our for our friends out there. We would love some feedback for our next episode next week. Uh, we're going to tackle issue two, much like we did last week going through issue one. But with the issue two podcast, we'd really love to hear from all of you and just answer some of the common myths that you're hearing about commercialized, legalized marijuana and ways that we could help answer those questions, give you ammunition for the conversations that you're having around that. So if you want to drop us an email at uh, the narrative at ccv.org, we'd love to, to address some of those concerns and issues uh, when we go through our podcast next week. But for, for this week, we've got a wide variety of stuff that, that we want to cover. And, and we're going to start with what I think is, it's not an understatement to say a pretty important letter that's been, uh, it's been drafted. It's been signed by more than 80 uh, black pastors and community leaders opposing issue one. Yeah, so we are um, really excited. Uh, we, we've got from from Cincinnati to Cleveland, all the urban cores and everything in between um, Toledo, Youngstown, Akron, just black pastors, influential uh, leaders, <clears throat> including some of our elected officials. Um, Blackwell, um, Ambassador Blackwell is on there, um, basically just saying that that we believe uh, and urge our fellow Christians in the black community, as well as all Ohioans, uh, to support the inherent value of every person to vote um, no on issue one in November, just supporting life uh, in our state. And, um, you know, a lot of times you look at the media and all the, the commercials that are being run, seems like there's only a handful of African-Americans who, who are actually pro-life, and that's just not true. Um, we have a very long and rich pro-life uh, history, and, and some of our younger African-Americans just need to be reminded of that. And so this is a great start. 80-plus um, uh, pastors, probably be over 100 um, this time next week, um, just standing for truth and, and life, and it's a beautiful thing. And we, we posted the audio of our Pro-Life Roots event uh, on the first week of, of this volume of the podcast, and it's going to be a, a theme of ours as we go through and continue to talk about issue one why we need African-Americans to return to those pro-life roots, but specifically with this letter, why is this so significant right now as, as we are, what, 40-some days away from, from yeah, we're October two 11th? Weeks. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and less than two two weeks now. Um, and and But honestly, I think Election Day, I, I was just looking at the countdown clock upstairs. I think it's going to be less than 40 days now. Wow. Uh, so it's it's right around the corner. I, I think that there, there's a lot of reasons why this is this letter is important. One, it's, it's a stake in the ground, kind of, uh, as David's saying, just sort of reminding uh, America of who the abortion industry is. Um, but but again, it's also like we've had a number of meetings with with pastors lately um, talking about this, this issue and what needs to be done. 
And the the bottom line is, you know, the the left is going to outspend us at least two to one, right? There there is there's no way around that, and we we've known that from from jump here, um, but uh, but our advantage is the body of Christ, right? I mean, it, b- both in the the realist sort of spiritual sense of things here, um, but also in a very practical. Uh, a political sense, which is the the, the body of Christ is, is covers the state. There's there's churches and church leaders everywhere, um, and uh, we are are we can be well connected, right? Um, and it's going to take every little bit um, of our, our grassroots efforts to to reach out. And so when you have something like this um, that that breaks through the narrative, right? It's as we talk on the narrative podcast, right? Um, but but something like this that is that, that kind of goes against the grain of what the media says or what a lot of people's cultural assumptions are, um, it it really uh, it, it can be a, a really strong tool to to help bring uh, bring victory. Uh, and and again, I think you know one of the things that we we've just seen as a very effective messaging technique is sometimes with folks um, you you need to uh, like. When what the media does, what the uh, what the enemy does is he he uses loneliness a lot, right? And when the media uses like you are alone if you are a Christian and you think marriage should only be between a man and a woman, right? Or you're you're lo- you're alone and you're weird if you think men shouldn't be allowed to play in girl sports, right? Um, and I think that's one of the things you know, David. This came out a little bit at the pro life uh, roots thing, and a lot of folks heard that on the podcast, but in some of the discussions beforehand is, you know, the media wants to communicate to the black community, like you are pro-abortion, right? This is, this is something that, that, that you think, and you don't have to think for yourself on this. Um, and something like this kind of helps break through that and says, no, you, you intrinsically know, everyone intrinsically knows this is wrong. David, let me ask you, do you think that, that we're at a moment, um, just in your conversations that you've had with black pastors where, um, the, the switch is starting to flip, like they're starting to see through those lies and, and, um, you know, not that we're only getting those traditional pro-life pastors, but actually getting some converts from a pro-abortion stance to now pro-life stance. Mike, when I tell you that, that well into the evening last night, I had Democrats, um, saying, Hey, sign me up. Like I, who cannot agree with a statement like this? Um, and I'm not asking them not to be Democrat. I'm, I'm asking them to acknowledge what we all know about the intrinsic value of every human person, even the unborn. Um, something in this messaging, something in this season has provoked a lot of especially young black pastors to, to, to really not change a viewpoint, but just be more vocal about the viewpoint. Um, and, uh, and so to answer your question, yes, I, I do feel like we are at, a, um, at an inflection point here. Uh, and, and, and as much as I'm, I'm aiming for um, everybody to vote no in November, I just I, supernaturally, I feel like it, it is time for a turning, a shift in the African-American community towards uh, a biblical worldview on life. Yeah. And if there are people out there that want some resources to share specifically on the, the pro-life history of the black community, we've got a webpage set up where we've got some slides that David made for, for his presentation at that event. And uh, we've also collated some videos that kind of outline the story. So you don't have to dig through YouTube to find them. They're all in one spot. It's on our website, ccv.org slash vote. There's a button that says get free resources. You can find not only the pro-life roots stuff, but, but also all of our resources about issue one and issue two that are available totally for free. 
I think we have, um, and maybe we can even play for you the the uh, the, the audio of it. Uh, we had a, a really powerful ad cut. Protect Women Ohio took uh, the Bishop Wooden event um, that we did uh, and cut a, a one minute ad uh, that's going to be going up on on social media, uh, but also could be played in, in churches as well. Um, and I, I think we can play that for you right now. What is the number one killer of us? It's not the police. It's abortion. The abortion movement and Planned Parenthood were started by a racist. Margaret Sanger openly talked about exterminating blacks. Abortion has decimated black birth rates. Black babies in Ohio are five times more likely to be aborted than white babies. Black folk, we are targeted for extinction. I believe that we have the right to exist. The greedy, racist abortion industry's ballot amendment means no limits on abortion. Even brutal, late-term abortions when the baby can feel pain. We're talking about the future of our country, our race, our society. Stop issue one. Vote no. You can't pray one way and vote another. By all means, share that broadly. Get that message out. That is that is a powerful, powerful ad. I I don't even know how many times I've I've seen it and heard it now, but it it truly gives me goosebumps every time. It is just a strong, strong message. So help us out, people. Share that message. We need that kind of grassroots effort on social media and in your, in your backyards and communities to to help us with the fight against issue one. Another thing we wanted to touch on today, it's maybe not quite as big of a deal, but it's one of those political, I'm going to say political zombies since we're kind yeah. of closing in on, on Halloween here, but redistricting, what is it? What does it mean? A lot of people know that it's a thing that both sides fight over, but don't know all of the mechanics that go, go into it. So Aaron, just give us kind of an update with where we are with these redrawn maps and and how we got to this spot. Yeah, you know, it, it's, a, it's a winding story. And again, there's nothing that gets people to turn off uh, a podcast or uh, radio like talking about redistricting. Um, but there's a reason why, you know, uh, back in 2010, uh, Eric Holder left uh, the U.S. Attorney General's office uh, to uh, maybe it was 2011 or 2012 that he actually left. Um, to, to run an initiative uh, for Barack Obama and the Democrats all on redistricting, right? Like he, he actually left, you know, maybe the you know, fourth or fifth most powerful position in the, uh, the world, arguably, uh, to lead a redistricting effort in the states. Um, and the reason is because these lines that get drawn um, really, really dictate uh, the direction of the country and the direction of individual states uh, for the next decade and then beyond that for, for generations to come. Um, and Ohio has been in just redistricting Groundhog Day uh, for uh, far too long um, because we'd pass maps and then they'd get sued and then the courts would uh, reject them and then we'd have to pass maps again and again and again and again. Um, ultimately it got to the point where it was like, Hey, we have an election coming up. So we're just going to use these maps no matter what, cause we have to have maps to be able to vote. Uh, and these are the lines that tell you what, you know, state legislative district you're in. So what state house you're in state Senate seat you're in. And then there's separate, uh, federal maps for what congressional district you're in. Um, and, uh, and again, here's the first and foremost thing about this, um, 
is there is no such thing that what, what, what the media will say and what the left will say here uh, in Ohio is, oh, we need to take politics out of drawing the maps. They're, they're saying we need to take politics out of drawing political lines. That, that, is, that is actually impossible, right? There's no such thing to draw political lines in an apolitical manner, right? It, it, the, the, the question is, are the lines being drawn by people who are elected to office or are the lines being drawn by unelected bureaucrats? Um, and in a fallen world, um, I would argue that the best situation is having laws, lines drawn by elected officials. So there's at least some accountability there as opposed to unelected bureaucrats. And so... Um, that's what we have here. Our lines are drawn by elected officials. Um, and they just actually earlier this week, uh, uh, passed maps. So we're going to have new maps that are going to last through the end of, um, this cycle. Um, and you'll be able to see who, you know, this will have big implications for the state house and who's, you know, you'll have incumbents that are drawn into districts together. And that's, that'll all get worked out on itself. That That's not really the big thing here. The, the, the big thing here is that, um, it, it's the, the process by which we go through really matters. Um, and if, uh, if the left has their way, this is how they can turn Ohio into a, just a, a, a liberal, quite honestly, communist bastion through this process. Yeah. So they're just to make sure I'm understanding correctly. They're saying that the process currently is unfair in that that's why it's been gerrymandered and there's a super majority of Republicans across the street. But at the same time, they would very much welcome that if they're the ones controlling that and, and having oh, that yeah. advantage. I mean, that, that's the, the reality of this is you go into New York, right? You, you go to New York or California and their maps are drawn favorably for Democrats, right? Um, it, the, the, the reality is whoever's in charge gets to draw the maps and gets to, you know, dictate where these lines go. And you put rules and, and different things in place to try to take as much of the, the politics out of it, trying to keep communities contiguous, trying to keep, you know, trying your best not to, to break up cities or things like that. But there's certain things, you know, you take a city like Columbus and you, you can't put the entire city in one, one district, right? So there's certain things like that, that you do, you, you put those guide rails in, but inevitably you're going to, political decisions are going to be made and there's, and there's no way of taking out, uh, taking, uh, taking the politics out of it. Um, there, and, and ultimately, uh, when you take it out of elected officials hands, the politics get what we've seen actually get worse. It just goes behind closed doors. Sure. Sure. And correct me if I'm wrong here too, just the last question for, for yeah. clarification on our, on our audience's standpoint, this isn't something that you just do unilaterally though, right? It's not only Republicans that are involved in this process, even if, even if there may be, um, the majority across the, the street in the state house and, and, um, they still have to have a certain representation of, uh, across the political spectrum to draw these lines, right? Yeah. So, so the way it works in Ohio is we have a redistricting commission of all elected officials. So on the commission is the governor, the state auditor, the state secretary of state. So Mike DeWine, Keith Faber, Frank LaRose, um, and then you have the House and Senate. So the House Speaker of the House, which is from the majority party, which is a Republican, that's Jason Stevens. Um, and then you have the um, Senate president, um, which is you know, he's the majority leader over there, which is Matt Huffman. And then you also have the minority leaders from both parties, right? So um, Allison Russo and Nikki Antonio. Uh, and they can also, I think actually in for the Republicans, they actually appointed um, – the, the speaker and Senate president appointed somebody to fill their spot from the, from the, their uh, caucus. Um, but so in, in this case, you have 
five Republicans, two Democrats that are in charge of, of voting the lines. Here, here's what's important about that, right? Is that three of those seats, th this is the one thing when, when people say Ohio's so gerrymandered that I always I always laugh at, which is like, if you're saying Ohio's gerrymandered, you're, you're accusing the uh, Northwest Territory uh, Ordinance as being a, a gerrymandered document because, you know, we have all statewide Republican officials, right? Like this is like, of course, the Republicans, the, the map should, you know, have more Republican seats than Democrats because we, you know, Republicans tend to do much better here than Democrats. Uh, that's not a partisan statement. That's just a statement of fact, right? And those those three seats on the commission in particular are are statewide elected seats that anyone can go for. So you can't really blame their positions on the commission as being a, uh, you know, a gerrymandered issue. Well, speaking of new territory, how's this for a segue? We got to go to Cleveland last week yeah. for our first ever gala up in awesome. up in that area of the state, and what an honor to have Tucker Carlson with us at the event. And we're we're going to play the audio from that for our for our listeners in, in this week's um, you know featured part of our program. But just wanted to get thoughts from from you, uh, Aaron and David, uh, about the night. I know. It's one of those things I felt like I couldn't quite get my head around expectations heading into it, but but I would say that by all means, uh, just the evening itself and and getting to hear from Tucker kind of exceeded my expectations because um, just I, I guess that's it's a guy you can't put in a box, and he definitely did not stay stay in a box uh, for his remarks with us last Thursday. It, it was phenomenal. I mean, it, it, wow, right? Because I think it was July. We still didn't know if we were going to have a Cleveland Gala. And uh, it was our first time for our listeners. This is our first time ever having a third gala in the Cleveland region. Um, and what what a way to do it. Um, Tucker was amazing. Um, people loved him uh, from the time he got on the plane to the time he walked in the in the hotel. Um, just everybody who took a picture, everybody who shook a hand was just saying, wow, what a nice guy. What a brilliant man. Um, he uh, he shocked me on a, on a lot of levels. I did not expect to uh, enjoy his talk as much as I did. Um, but uh, just powerful message on courage to the body of Christ specifically, um, and um, and just the the atmosphere in the room um, from the servers on up to you know everybody, just just completely uh, enjoying everybody's company, um, and, uh, and and just to see everybody. I think eighty percent. Uh, Stephanie will tell us better, but um, eighty percent were were brand new people to the CCV family. It's just phenomenal. I mean, you can't you you can't say enough about Tucker and and just the event itself. Yeah, you bring up a good point there, David, with mentioning the servers and things like that. It'd be one thing if you were getting the response from the people who, you know, came yeah. specifically yeah. to be there. But uh, the servers, even the AV table, saw a lot of heads nodding and uh, saw a couple fist pumps and things like that. So it was just a it was a fascinating night to 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 be in the room for and get to experience. No, it really was, and it's it's hard right now, like to think through someone. Um, that is is more of, of a, a voice for our cause, uh, right? Than than Tucker, especially especially with the direction he's he's been going lately. Um, and that was the I, I got to be honest, and, and we we've joked about this a little bit when we booked Tucker, and I had watched uh, I, I was in Iowa for the for the family leader event um, with the presidential candidates that he he interviewed, and when we booked him, one he, he's obviously the most popular guy around right now. Um, 
I had kind of mentally prepared myself for just 40 minutes on Ukraine when he got up there and talked. And I was like, you know what? That's, it'll be interesting, right? But he got up there and, and as, as you'll hear, like he dove straight into issues one and two and drove straight into his faith. Um, and like a message that could not have been more perfectly tailored for a, um, not just for a CCV event, but for where Ohio and America is right now. Um, and the other thing when you listen to this is he did all of this without a single note, right? Not, not a, not a speech, not a note. Um, he just got up there and, and, uh, let it rip. Um, and it was again, to, to David's point, uh, beyond that. And this is, this is something I'm always, you know, starting off my career, having been a staffer, um, for, for big personalities and things like that. I'm always really mindful of how do, how do real public people treat the people around them. Um, and that, that says a lot about their character, the people that they don't have to care about uh, what they think of them. Uh, and Tucker was uh, somehow even kinder uh, behind the scenes, uh, right? And it just blew us away. And I'm gonna say this, and, and you know, you may wanna file this away, but there's, there's very few times around CCV that I'm more proud of this guy here uh, Aaron, he was not shabby at all. I mean, those of you who've never been to a gala, you, you think, you know, you like him on the podcast. You need to hear Aaron when he's not on Dayquil. Um, <laughs> it, it is it, it is truly inspiring um, to let people know um, in the state of Ohio, this is the direction that we're going, um, the inspiration that that builds. And, and every year I get an opportunity because I'm, I'm the voice of God standing yeah. in the back. Uh, <laughs> But when he comes back, one of my favorite part of every gala is being able to pray for him uh, before he gets mic'd up and jumps on stage. Uh, and, and when he speaks, you could truly see, again, 80% of these people had no idea really who he was, who we are. Um, but the inspiration in the room was felt even before Tucker got up. And so uh, just thankful for this guy and uh, keep, it, keep him in prayer, his family in prayer, uh, uh, because he's truly carrying a vision that, that is far beyond himself. I wish I had anything to add to to that brown nose session, yeah, but I just, yeah, I got just passed the day quick. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> bonus check is in the mail, David. I, I do believe. Well, I'm glad we could uh, give Tucker a little bit of a platform this week by by yeah. having his comments on the program. I know he's down on his luck. Exactly. He's just just social media videos from his basement or something like that. But it's good to good to be able to share this audio with you this week. And before we get to Tucker's audio, just want to re remind you for next week's issue two podcast. To, to get us your questions, any myths or um, common arguments that you're hearing in your social circles that you'd like us to address next week on the podcast, get them to the narrative at ccv.org and we'll do our best to answer them all when we chat with you next week. But coming up, we'll hear from Tucker Carlson. Stick around. You don't want to miss it on the narrative. Hey, narrative listeners. You know, Christians in the marketplace today face more unique and challenging threats than ever before. Businesses are following woke capitalism. Chambers of Commerce are beholden to social justice, and secular activists are chipping away Christians' First Amendment rights. As Ohio's only Christian Chamber of Commerce, the Christian Business Partnership stands in the gap to advocate for, to educate, and to celebrate Christian business owners. Joining the partnership also allows businesses to provide their employees with health care insurance, workers' compensation, and exclusive banking and educational discounts. To find out more and to join, Go to cbpohio.org. That's cbpohio.org.
www.ghostbusters.org. It, it's, thank you so much. It's awful to be introduced by someone you really like because it feels like log rolling. Um, you're so great. No, you're so great. Uh, JD Vance really is great, actually. And I'm not sure, first of all, thank you for having me. It's so weird to be speaking at the Center for Christian Virtue. I feel well, having so little Christian virtue. <laughs> I just always think of myself as kind of a mediocre person. Um, my father always used to say the root of all wisdom is knowing how rotten you are. Um, it's something I meditate on every day. So I just want to make clear before I begin any remarks at all, Christian virtue is something I aspire to rather than a body, uh, just to be clear. Uh, I do aspire to it. Uh, but J.D. Vance, I have no idea, because I'm not in Ohio that much anymore since I don't cover campaigns. I don't know how popular he is here. I hope very. Um, but, in, but I can tell you this. I left Washington three years ago and now live in a town that's like literally a 50th the size of this room, okay? So, but you know, my parents and my son are still in Washington and obviously I spent 35 years there so I, I know a lot of people there and so I know how he's regarded in Washington which is as literally a unique figure in the Senate. Out of 100, there's one. And one person who truly doesn't care what's popular and is solely focused on what he thinks is right for the country and for the state, period. There's just one. Um, I, I'll just be honest, I, I really don't like U.S. senators very well at all. Um, and so it's through that lens that I'm assessing this. And I, I think there's some decent people in the Senate, but there's only one who really is not on a leash, who is free inside to do what he thinks is right, and that's J.D. Vance. And, um, and you see it. He stood alone the other day on an issue. I mean, there's a whole hierarchy of issues in Washington, and some are like controversial, air quotes controversial. And some are just like so controversial they're just verboten, like you just don't bring them up. Because it's not simply your constituents who might judge you or the media who might judge you, it's the other 99 you work with. And, you know, like all groups, you know, there's a, a lot of intense pressure to conform. The herd instinct is the strongest instinct, maybe even before, you know, more basic survival instincts. The need to fit in with the people around you is paramount for most people. And J.D. Vance has bucked that in very real ways recently, like this week. And there's nothing I admire more than that. And someone said to me the other day, well, do you think it's because, in fact, it was flying here. Do you think it's because J.D. Vance is from, you know, a different kind of background? You know, grew up in a poor family. He wrote a book about it, grew up in Appalachia, disordered environment, lived in his childhood the effects of deindustrialization, as many in Ohio have. And he's come from that background. He's in the center. I thought, no, that's actually not the reason. You know, he's not the only person in politics from a humble background. What makes J.D. unique, I think, is that he went from that to Yale Law School. So I think the root of J.D.'s power is not that he's representing the people he grew up with, which he is, but that he has contempt for the people who are trying to bring him to the dark side. That's the truth. You see people come to Washington, and I've seen this a thousand times in my life, and they get there, I'm gonna fight the man, and they get there and they realize they kinda wanna be the man, actually. And that was the point of the whole exercise was to get close to the man and get an invitation to the Aspen Institute and to have the Atlantic Magazine write a puff piece about them and to meet Zelensky. That is the core desire. I'm serious. Little guy in the tracksuit. <laughs> that, that is the kind of the whole purpose 
was to get out of whatever forgotten town they were from and get with the cool kids in DC. And J.D. Vance had the unusual privilege of learning that world before he got to the Senate and deciding that it was hollow, that didn't lead anywhere. And that was a path to destruction, not just for the country, but to his soul and rejecting it. And boy, they hate him for that because he knows who they are. And as someone who grew up in that world, I can just tell you firsthand, I didn't grow up in Appalachia. I grew up in the opposite. I grew up in Georgetown, um, La Jolla and Georgetown. I, I know what that feels like to look around and think this is as good as it gets, supposedly. This isn't good at all. It's awful. I don't want anything to do with this. These people are hollow. They think they're God. Um, so that's the root of his power. And I'm just I'm grateful as an American that he's in the Senate. So uh, I'm really struck by the, the ballot initiatives um, that your voters will be facing uh, in November. And I'm struck because they're so very different from the politics that I covered for the bulk of my life. I'm 54, been covering this stuff since I was 22. And for most of that time, the debates that we had in the political sphere were over competing visions for how to improve people's lives. The minimum wage was always a really intense debate. And I always felt like maybe the minimum wage killed jobs, I guess, that's what my side said. And I think that's probably true. And the other side would say, but people need more money to live, and so we're gonna mandate that they make this much. And it was a, you know, I was on one side of it, but I could also sort of see the other side. Both sides were at least pretending to try to improve the lives of the people who voted for them. But when you wind up in an election where the two top ballot initiatives are, one, encouraging people to kill their own kids, and two, encourage their kids to do drugs, who's benefiting here? I'm serious. The one unalloyed source of joy in your life is your children. The point of life is to have children and to watch them have grandchildren. Nothing will bring you joy like that will. Nothing comes close. Nothing comes close. Would you trade your job for your children? Would you trade anything for your children? Of course not. And so anyone telling you don't have children, kill your children, is not your friend, is your enemy. And by the way, it's a very recognizable promise that they're making you because it's as old as time and it's chronicled in great detail throughout the Hebrew Bible. It's human sacrifice, yes. which rears its head about every four chapters yes. and which is singled out for approbation every time. Of all the sins the ancients committed, that sin, every single time it's described, is called detestable, at least in the RSV. <laughs> detestable. God singled that out. Throw your children into the fire. Now, why were people doing that? Because, of course, they believed they were getting power and contentment and happiness in return. All it's going to take is to sacrifice your children. This is as old as time. Every civilization on the face of the earth has engaged in it. Everyone, not just the Mayans and the Aztecs, but the Scandinavians, my people. The I No, it's true. Even the Swedes did it. I know. It's embarrassing. But the archaeological record tells us that human sacrifice, the sacrifice of children, the killing of children, is the one constant in human civilization. Now, you answer the question, how can that be? How did all these civilizations, at different points of the compass that we know had no contact with one another, reach the same conclusion that in exchange for killing their own children, they would be happy or safe? Probably not something, a conclusion they reached organically, right? It cuts against the imperative of evolutionary biology, which is to continue the species. And those of us who grew up in a secular world being taught 
that people are motivated by instinct designed to continue the species, pause at that and say, wait a second, how does killing your own children advance the cause of perpetuating the species? It doesn't. In fact, it's an attack on that. So it's not a natural human function to want to kill your own children, actually. That's an idea, an impulse that was introduced. Outside forces are acting on people at all times throughout history in every culture on the planet to convince people that if they sacrifice their children, they will be happy and safe. And that's exactly what this is. This is a religious right. This is not a policy debate. They're not telling you that some girl got raped at 13 and she needs to go to college and therefore, unfortunately, we need to abort the child. No, that was 20 years ago. Now they're saying abortion is itself a pathway to joy. Really? So this is not a political debate. This is a spiritual battle. Yes. There is no other conclusion. Take more drugs and be happy? Right, okay. Less conscious, less aware. Give your soul over. Dull yourself. Become a robot. Really? Those are the promises they're making? Okay. So how do you respond to this? And that's what I've been thinking about all day. I went on my morning walk with my dogs in Maine this morning, from which I derive much wisdom every morning, my wife and I. And um, my, and I, by the way, I'm not a theologian. I'm the opposite of a theologian, so don't take any theological insight from me at all. I'm just a reader, okay? And here's what's jumped out at me. So my second favorite character in the New Testament is Paul. And I, I think, from what I can tell, the bulk of the New Testament is written by or about Paul. He's a leading character in this drama, I would say. And, and I think just an amazing person, because he was not a good person. He was like a horrible person. He was on his way to murder Christians when he was knocked down and blinded, and then pivoted on a dime and devoted his life to spreading the gospel. So I find it very inspiring that a truly awful person could become one of the great people of all time. That's reassuring. But the two qualities that really jump out of the story of Paul's life, first and most obviously, is the courage. This is like the bravest guy ever. There's not a letter he wrote where he didn't have a sword hanging over his neck. He expected at any moment he murdered, and I think the consensus among historians is, in the end, he was. He was murdered, as were all of his friends. But he lived with the certainty that he was going to be killed for his beliefs every day. And he was totally unbothered by it, completely. He was just moving as fast as he could in the time allotted. He didn't know how much he had, but he just kept going, but he was never afraid. As his boat was sinking in the med, in his year-long journey, and you know, everyone with us freaking out, totally fine. Oh, we're shipwrecked, no problem. <laughs> never afraid. And by the way, why would he be afraid? He believed his fate was sealed. He was going to join Jesus. He was going to heaven. He was totally convinced of that. And it seems to me maybe the one takeaway is, like, that's table stakes in Christian faith. Fearlessness. That is actually the marker of it. Are you afraid or are you not? Well, if you're afraid, then you're kind of not doing it right, are you? Like, there's no excuse for being afraid. I, and I don't, I don't want to take this opportunity that you've so graciously given me to spend the next 40 minutes pounding on the Episcopal Church, so I won't. But I grew up in it. You know, my ancestors were in it, high-level people in it. 
I married into it. I was educated in it. I educated my kids in it. I was as firmly ensconced as that church as you could be, even as it crumbled around us and became this very aggressively pagan institution. But we stayed because it's hard to leave something you grew up in. But the moment that we left for good, and actually really, it was the greatest thing we ever did, really got to understand God better once we left church. Weird how that works. But, um, <laughs> but the moment that catalyzed it for us was COVID, which was really an amazing and clarifying experience. And I'm just, as, as sad as it was, I'm so grateful that we lived through that because everything became so much clearer than it was. But the church that we went to closed for COVID and they closed their Christmas service. And we have this, the one thing about the Episcopal Church, we have this amazing liturgy written by actual Christians. And we have lessons and carols, this like ritual that I grew up with, my wife grew up with, her father's an Episcopal minister, and we love it. And all of our children come home and we go to it and it's just this beautiful service and they cancel lessons and carols. And I know I'm revealing how shallow I am, but I just wanted to go to the service because I love lessons and carols. I love all the carols and I love all the lessons. And they didn't have it. And I said to my wife, well, why aren't we having lessons and carols? Like, that's like a requirement. There's no Episcopal church without lessons and carols. Like, what? And she's like, well, COVID, and the minister sent this letter. Here it is. She is afraid that she's going to, you know, die <laughs> from COVID. And I was like, well, she's afraid she's going to die? Why is she worried about dying? She's a Christian minister. Like, why should she care? <laughs> dying? If you're afraid to die, then you don't really mean it, do you? Yeah. No. Even I, I was like 50 years old at the time and like probably have some reason to worry about what happens after I die. Even I'm not afraid to die. I'm a talk show host. And she's afraid to die? Okay, not a Christian. We stop wasting our time on that. And we've done lessons and carols in our backyard in the three years since, we're doing it again. We get a choir, they're terrible at singing, they drink too much, but it's amazing. <laughs> we, we hired the waitresses at a local restaurant to be our choir last year, because no one in my neighborhood can sing. And because we're Episcopalians, we hold on to the rituals, we do have an open bar at our service. And they'd never seen anything like that, because they're Baptist, and they just hit that so hard. They're like, do you have Bailey's Irish cream? I don't even know what that is. No, but we'll get it, says my accommodating wife. We got a quart, they drank the whole quart. They were the worst singers ever. They couldn't pronounce King Wenceslas at all, but it was wonderful. And it was so spirit-filled and edifying, just wonderful. Everything about it was wonderful. Anyway, but my point is fear, cowardice, is the clearest possible marker of the absence of faith. There is no excuse for that. Christians, don't always have to reach, reach the right decision. They should be ever conscious of their fallibility, of their fundamental silliness. People are ridiculous. And if you don't believe that, next time you get out of the shower, stand in front of a mirror and take a good look at yourself, you look ridiculous. <laughs> you do. You look ridiculous naked. I'm just sorry, you do, okay? We all do. And furry and lumpy and like, you can't take yourself too seriously if you look in the mirror when you get out of the shower. And you should. I've done that. <laughs> so Christians can absolutely get it wrong and do. They can follow the wrong path. They can be mistaken. 
They can be silly and profane. They can commit the worst sins imaginable. The one thing they cannot do is be afraid. Period. And so boldness, again, is not just to add us extra. It's a baseline requirement for following the gospel. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing it right. Okay? So that's the first thing. Don't be afraid. The second thing I notice in reading Paul's letters is his deep concern for his fellow Christians. Now, it was a universalist message to the uncircumcised and the circumcised, and that's the beauty of Christianity. It's for everybody. No matter what you look like, no matter what you're, where you're from, your language, it, it, it's truly a universal faith, which was a completely radical idea when Jesus was crucified. Like, I don't think anyone had ever thought of anything like There was nothing like that. Never have, had been anything like that. And I love that. And so Paul was preaching to everybody. In fact, in a lot of ways, he, he was preaching to the Greeks a lot of the time. But even though his concern was for everybody, his heart was focused, and you see this again and again in his letters, on his fellow Christians. Titus, Timothy, how are they doing? How are you? I love you. He really cares about his brothers in the faith. He really, really does. And it's intimate and kind of raw in these letters. It's wonderful. And I think that's a model for us. We should care about everybody. But we should have a soft spot for other Christians. We should. And we don't at all. We don't at all. And that's one thing I've noticed the whole time I've been in D.C. I'm, I'm totally opposed to tribalism, particularly religious tribalism. My instinct is ecumenical. Like we're all in this. You know, let's speak to everybody. That is, I mean, I'm American, very American. And that's an American idea. But I can't help but notice how the Christian church has almost specifically excluded concern for other Christians from its portfolio. I see it all the time. I'll never forget going to Iraq in two, to cover the war in 2003 and running into a Christian. I didn't know there were Christians in Iraq. Well, there was 1.5 million of them, actually. It was one of the biggest and oldest Christian communities in the world. It's gone now. 1.5 million Christians in Iraq in 2003. They're about, we think, 150,000 or, or fewer. So that's like, I don't know. Kind of qualifies as genocide, I think. Yeah. I mean, by definition, they're gone. Yeah. Okay, a lot of them were murdered. Not a lot of them came here because they were excluded, specifically excluded, by the Obama State Department. This was a news story at the time. So we're getting a lot of refugees from Iraq. What percentage were Christian? None. And no one said anything about it. This wasn't hidden information. I reported it at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, there are a lot of great people coming. Well, okay, but if you're a Christian church, what about the Christians? The president who sent them there was a self-described Christian. But there was not one word in 20 years. I have not heard one word of concern about what happened to all those Christians. Nobody seems to care. We should care. Not just about them, but certainly about them. Why wouldn't we? They're Christians, so are we. The Christians of Syria, never hear a word about it. Look, the world is super complicated, and anytime someone tries to reduce a conflict, say, or a rivalry in another part of the world to a bumper sticker, you know that person's lying. Because the closer you get to anything, whether it's a country or a marriage or any human interaction, the closer you get, the more you know, the more you understand it's indescribably complex and you can never fully know the truth. Okay? I'm only suggesting that one factor that Christians use to assess the behavior of their government and other governments ought to be the treatment of Christians. 
It ought to be. Why is it not? So if there's a conflict in, say, Syria, and you're being told by everybody in the media that the bad guy in that conflict is Bashar al-Assad, I'm sure he's bad. I'm not endorsing the guy. I never met him. Glad I don't live in Damascus. On the other hand, I think one of the questions you can ask is, how are the Christians faring? Are they going to do better under Bashar al-Assad? There's a massive Christian community in Syria. There was. We funded the Islamists who killed a lot of them. We're funding the Islamists who are killing the Christians. Anyone know that? No, of course not. Churches never talk about it. That's true. Are we for that? I'm not for that. If the only thing I know, look, it's far away. I don't think it has anything to do with us. I don't think we should be involved. But as long as we are involved, why doesn't someone stand up and say, wait a second, we're funding the killing of Christians? No, I'm a Christian. I'm against that. How's that? Let's start there. Right? The, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, super complicated. I don't think there's an easy answer. I don't think there's a good guy and a bad guy. I don't think it's Churchill versus Hitler. I just don't think that. And the more I learn about it, the more I'm confused. I'm certainly not endorsing Russia. I don't live there either, never been there. But one of the guides that we as Christians should use to assess that situation is how do Christians fare in those countries? It's totally legitimate to ask that question. Is it easier to be a Christian in Russia or Ukraine? They're forcing us to pick. I mean, I kind of happen to live in a world where I don't have to pick. I don't know, they're foreign countries far away. They're not America, I'm not that interested, but they're making us be interested. So now that we're required to be interested and required to pay for the war, why doesn't, someone, why doesn't some Christian minister stand up and say, how do the, you know, is it easier to be a Christian in Ukraine or Russia? One of those countries just arrested a bunch of priests and shut down churches with, with political police in the army. It wasn't Russia. I raised that question at a Christian gathering. People scowled at me. Really? They're arresting priests? I don't need to know more, actually. Well, they had bad opinions. Well, okay. So? I have bad opinions. I don't want to be arrested. Bad opinions are not grounds for arrest. Sorry. And moreover, the gut-level reaction of Christians to the arrests of Christian clergy should be horror. Period. Period. Paul cared about his brothers in the faith, and so should we. What's the oldest Christian church in the world? Anyone know? Anyone know? Well, it's in Bethlehem. Yeah, been there? Yeah, it's a mess. Church is a mess. You know, everyone goes to the Holy Land. We get all these preachers on our show at Fox. You know, we go to the Holy Land. Well, I love the Holy Land. There's nothing I like more than Jerusalem. It's my favorite place in the world. It's an unbelievable place whose spiritual power is palpable. You can feel it. Go to the Western Wall and you can feel it vibrating off the wall, and that's God's power. And I don't care what religion you are, you can feel it. It makes the hair on your head stand up. It's amazing. But it's not the only holy place in the Holy Land. The Church of the Nativity is the oldest Christian church in the world, period. And it's one of the oldest Christian communities in the world, and they're not doing well at all. And the church is a mess. It's a mess. And they're hassled by government authorities all the time. Now, I know it's super complicated. I couldn't be more, you know, on one side of that issue, totally in favor of the current government and all that. But you're not allowed to hassle Christian churches. Sorry, that has to be our position. I don't care where they are. I don't care about your little temporal political arguments. The Church of the Nativity is a core Christian holy site. And I don't care who's in charge of the territory or the countries around it, I don't care because that church predates those governments and will outlast them, as will the faith. 
but Christians are so intimidated in this country. We would always get these, I'm sorry, to, you know, I couldn't be more in favor of the faith, but we would get these, you know, blow-dried, guitar-playing preachers on, very interested in money on our show, because the preachers had no, they didn't know the difference, they had no idea, you know, from a good preacher or a bad preacher, and they'd be going on, and I'd say, how's Church of the Nativity doing? Oh, shut up, that's not, ugh, that's in the wrong country. What? I don't care what country it's in. It's a Christian holy site. And you are not allowed to get in the way of the worship there. And if you do, we're not sending you any money. How's that sound? Like, why wouldn't that be our position as Christians? And yet, even to say that now is considered like totally forbidden. You're into Christian nationalism. No, I'm not. I'm not even sure what that is, by the way. I'm an American nationalist. I grew up in the United States of America, and I support my country, okay? But I also don't imagine that the goals of the U.S. government, which governs the country that I love, that I was born in and will die in, as the holder of only one passport, I don't imagine that the goals of that government align necessarily with the goals of my faith. And this really is one of the great misperceptions American Christians have. This is not, you know, if you are in another country, you sort of know the government is hostile to you because you're a Christian. The Iraqi Christians certainly learned that. Syrian too. Christians at the Church of the Nativity know that quite well. But here, where churches have the American flag, which I fly over my house, I'm very, couldn't, I salute it and I will till I die. But that flag sits in most of our churches. Every church I've ever been to in life has an American flag, which is great, and I hope they continue. But the downside of that is it inculcates in people this assumption that the government supports the church or is not hostile to the church. And the truth is, if you practice real Christianity, the people in charge want to kill you. And that's always been true, period. Not because you're a threat to them militarily. You're giving unto them what is due to them. That's a requirement of your faith. But because you are saying there is an authority higher than you. You are not God. You are the government, I will follow your laws, I will pay you the taxes you ask, but I'm not going to worship you because there is a higher authority than you. And that declaration, whether it's said out loud or just implied, or even if you're just giving off the vibe, they can smell the vibe. I have a nephew who in fourth grade is my favorite, I have many nephews, he's my favorite, I'll just say it, he's my favorite nephew. And he lived right next door to me, you know, his whole life. And our kids all went to the same school. And he, this kid was in trouble from, like, fourth grade on. And I remember asking one of the teachers of the school, like, what did he do? Well, he just, you just can tell, like, he's disobedient. Well, did he do anything? Well, he just, he just doesn't, he's not with the program. <laughs> they can smell on this kid the spirit of autonomy. And, of course... The main goal of every lower school teacher is to crush autonomy, is to crush you. You stand up like, why, why, no, shut up. People can smell it when you're not fully on board. And that goes for massive human organizations, even the largest one in human history, which is the U.S. government, the largest organization in human history. Now, the point of all large human organizations is to perpetuate themselves, period, period. And if you won't bow before them in total obedience and love, they will try and kill you. That's been true since Rome. 
That's been, why did they come in and destroy the second temple right after the crucifixion? Why did they do that? Why did they, they committed genocide against the Jews in Jerusalem, as obviously you know. Why'd they do that? Were the Jews marching on Rome? No. All they were doing was saying, we've got our own God, thanks. That's it. And that was enough to get killed and have their temple reduced to rubble, of which the Western Wall is the only remaining part. So this is a standing feature of human civilization. People of sincere faith will always be the target of harassment and more by the temporal authorities. And we somehow have convinced ourselves that we're the exception to that, and we're not. And we saw it during COVID, where they were literally shutting down Christian churches with, by the way, the full cooperation of the Christian, minister, the Christian ministers running those churches, while simultaneously allowing strip bars and liquor stores and weed dispensaries to remain open. There could not be a clearer signal of intent. Your faith is a threat to us, and we're going to shut you down. And in the face of that, the cowards who ran those churches went along with it. I've never been more disgusted by the behavior. I've never seen behavior that upset me more than that. Because it was a total betrayal of the people who go to those churches and of the promise of those churches, which is to minister to people's souls fearlessly, no matter what, no matter what NBC News says. And meanwhile, as a Christian, I was both inspired and ashamed to see Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn continue as if nothing had ever happened. I just loved them for that. And I envied them for that. What a cohesive community. They were told, oh, your weddings are a threat to public health. Okay, yeah, all right, okay, all right. <laughs> and they, they kind of, they didn't go on TV to be like, this will not stand. They just kind of did the weddings anyway. And they would get arrested and they'd sort of go to jail and then get bailed out. Their friends would bail them out. And they just have another wedding again. <laughs> and they didn't say anything about it. They just did it. They just did it. And I thought, that's what I want my church to be. Because they think that their faith and their culture and their traditions, they, they sought no conflict with government that I saw at all. The New York Times did a whole, whole series on how the Orthodox Jews of Crown Heights were a threat to the nation or something, and they just, just kind of ignored it. They, they never even defended themselves. They just kept going to weddings. <laughs> that is the way. And I'm never gonna be, I'm never gonna have a black hat and earlocks but I will never stop respecting them for that because that is what wins people. Not what you say, but what you do. People are like your dog. They don't understand a word you're saying. They watch what you do. My dogs speak no English that I'm aware of, but if I stand up and turn a certain way, they know we're going for a walk. And they're not any different from people. The churches that live out their Christianity in their fearlessness, in their concern for humanity, and their special concern for other Christians, no matter where they are, no matter what government they live under, because they are united in this common faith, that, more than anything, will inspire people to join the faith. Just as Paul inspires us 2,000 years later. The guy's boat is sinking. Everyone's freaking out. He's like, no problem at all. I mean, that's the equivalent of flying from 
you know, Narita to Dulles, and you're, you know, you're over the Pacific, and you hit clearer turbulence and drop 10,000 feet in five seconds. Everyone's freaking out on the plane and screaming, and you're just the one guy like, no problem at all. Can you imagine? That's the goal, and that's the path. Not confrontation, but total self-confidence, total fearlessness, and relentless defense of each other. Thank you. Thank you, Tucker. I was, uh, I'll say we've been, I've been doing events like these for a few years now, and um, I was even, my, my real measure with a speech like this is watching my wife and how often she nods, and that, that, I think that was the most nods I got, right, Maria? <laughs> I think her neck hurts, she's that, just that like turning <laughs> Exactly, that, maybe it was an eye roll, I can't tell. Uh, but, um, just a few things as, as we wrap, and we, we've, we've gone, uh, you know, be, my fault for rambling too much earlier, but I, I do want to have a, just a, a few questions for you as we, we wrap the evening here. One, um, recently you were at our, our friend Bob Vanderplot's event, and you talked about you were reading through the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and where are you now in reading through the Bible, and what's, what's jumping out of you at I'm God's I'm at Second Chronicles, headed to Ezra, baby. Head straight into Ezra? Uh, <laughs> Ezra Nehemiah, one of yeah, my favorites. Exactly. I, I honestly can't wait to get there. Um, Second Chronicles has been a slog because it's repetitive. But then I feel like the repetition is designed to highlight certain themes. And um, I've already read the New Testament. I did kind of did it backwards. But um, so I'm, I'm real. I mean, it's been a transformative experience for me. But the thing that jumps out at me is how flawed the kings are. Um, and, and some of them are, and they're a mixture, actually. They're not, and that's what I love about it. I mean, there's so many things I love about it. First of all, this is the, this is the Jewish national history. Match that against any other national history. I mean, the Persians wrote theirs, the Americans have written ours, the Brits wrote, you know, many volumes Winston Churchill contributed, of their national history. National history. This is the most honest national, national history ever written. It's, unbelie it's unbelievable. Like, everybody is screwed up and they're totally honest about it. There's, there's no book about how like George Washington was looking out his window and saw a girl bathing and then grabbed her for adultery and sent her husband off to get murdered. Like, that may have happened, but we would never admit it. So the rawness of it, it just blows my mind. And it's, it's true. I mean, that's yeah. how you know it's true. Yeah. Um, but the, the kings, even the ones I so admire, mostly David and Solomon, Asa too, there are a lot of great ones. Every single one, in the end, winds up in one form or another, in some appalling ways, worshiping a false god. Yeah. Even the best ones do. After like a lifetime of benefiting from following God, they'll worship, you know, they get the Asherah pole or the Baal on the high place or even throw their kids into the fire and the prophets will be like, don't do that, you're gonna screw up everything, and they do it anyway. And so that makes me think, sort of like with my point about child sacrifice, again, don't take theological insight from me, but I'm just noticing this as a reader, I'm a close reader, I will say, that they're being enticed by some outside power. Yeah. I mean, there's just no doubt about it, actually. Yeah. So if you're, even Solomon screws, I love Solomon, yeah. because he pursues wisdom rather than wealth, and pursuing wisdom is the goal in this life, in my opinion. And wisdom, a prerequisite for wisdom is humility. So if you're wondering if you're, Capable of being wise or not, take stock. And if you find yourself really wanting, if you fully appreciate your own ignorance and lack of foresight, then you are on the road to wisdom, in my view. So he had that. 
And even he screws up at the end. And so it really makes you feel like these people are being, as we are, constantly enticed by the lie, which never changes through history, which is, worship me and you will be powerful. That is 100% the lie that is consistent throughout history. And of course, it ends up destroying you. It destroys every single one of them. Some of them, as noted, tragically kill their own children, as thousands in our country do. Have an abortion, be happy. Could there be a bigger lie? The only thing that matters is your children. I, had, I knew someone pretty well who was about to have an abortion, and it was a horrible, because it always is. I mean, people, it's not something people do lightly, obviously. And I've seen that before, because I've lived in that world for so long, in the secular world for so long. I mean, I've never lived in a Christian world my whole life, so like, I'm very much an outsider to this. But this person was saying, I feel like I have no choice. And I said, I don't know anything about this stuff. You know, I'm hardly a moral voice or whatever, but I do know I've got a ton of children and suffer through this and you will find that that child is the only thing that matters. And I call her, uh, makes me emotional, on his birthday every year. And it's turned out to be true. And like, her life is a mess, actually, <laughs> you know, because all of our lives are a mess. It's not easy. Lots of things are not resolved and never will be resolved because most of life never gets resolved, like ever. Bad childhood, how do I fix it? Oh, sorry, too late, or whatever. (laughs) But the one thing that we have that we know for a fact, even when it's terrible, is great, is having children. And the idea that they're telling people, you'll be happy without that? Are you kidding? And people buy it, and it sounds like that thing's gonna pass here, and that just makes you feel like, I mean, I'm so grateful for the work that you were doing, but I also feel like, you know, praying for the country really needs to, and I know that, that you do Amen. it, no, yeah. needs to be a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, I'll say a couple things. One, one of the reasons that uh, through our church ambassador network we started a few years ago was what we call prayer at the state house, where four times a year we bring the body of Christ together. And we had 250 people in there praying this year. Actually, Christina Rogner was in the committee, and they could hear the, the, the praise going through the halls of the state house while we were there. I'll, I'll say, you know, I don't mean to give you a spoiler alert here, but Book of Nehemiah is one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> Good, I'm and, and, but, but I think that it, it, the, the staff has heard me talk about this a lot. I think it's, it's so illustrative for us as Christians engaging in public policy. And, and a lot of times I'll say guys in my role love Nehemiah, right? Because it's a, it's a guy standing up to government and, and talking to uh, lobbying King Artaxerxes and telling him he's got to go do his religious duties. And, and then there's all these people that are, are coming against him and he's fighting them. And, and he has the really great moment where he's, you know, building the wall with a sword and a hammer and he's building a wall. I mean, come on, that's awesome, right? That's, we love that. And, and he, success, he succeeds and all of the, the, all of these people that were coming against him uh, like run away and, and, and all of the Jews, they, they recommit themselves to God and it's this beautiful thing, right? And that's Nehemiah 1 to 12, chapters 1 to 12. And we like to stop right there. Just, just leave it there. We leave off chapter 13, which is the most important part of chapter 13 and is the most important part for us even as we're fighting issues 1 and 2. Because what happens in 13? Nehemiah goes back to seeing King Artaxerxes. He was the cupbearer to the king, so he had an obligation to go back. He comes back to Jerusalem, and what does he find after this massive victory and rededication? All of the Israelites doing the exact same sin that got them cast out and exiled in the first place. Yes! And instead of him riding off into the sun, you see this really 
weird and hard picture of him like yanking people's hair out and kicking them. And he's like, and, and his last words are like, God, remember me because I tried. I, I don't know what else to do. And it was because they got the political victory, but the people's hearts didn't change. But I don't, I don't, maybe they did. I mean, it's, it does Christianity or, or any faith seems a little bit like the New Year's diet. Like you, you know, it's the right thing. And no, I'm serious. It's the right thing. And you go on it and you feel better. And then something in you is like, I really think Oreos are going to make me happy. Oh yeah. And even though you know, they're not. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, it's like March and you're eating Oreos again. And you're like, right? and you know, it's wrong. I'm not saying I have experience in this, but I'm just saying. <laughs> when you get out of the shower, you look in the mirror, you might have some experience in this. Right. Lumpy, furry form right. looking at you. And, but there's something in you. It's like very deep. It's not, I mean, you can be all in because I mean, my read, my very shallow first time read. Okay. But is that these guys, these leaders, like they're all in, like they mean it. King Asa, he had massive. He was awesome. And by the way, anyone who's not on board gets killed immediately. Like they were, they were very serious about this. They were not kidding around. It was not performative. It was absolutely serious. And the next thing you know, he's like got the fertility pole in his yard. He's like forgotten everything. So the lure of false gods is very powerful. Yep. It's like Oreos. It's real. It never goes away. Right. Well, which, which again, it's why reading the Old Testament without the, 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 the promised king doesn't make any sense, right? But when you see it's all pointing to the coming king who, can, who lives the perfect life, who can do it for us because we can't do it ourselves, is where it makes sense. Amen. Um, we, on the flight out, um, you'd mentioned that you'd been traveling quite a bit. Uh, now, now, you know, now that you don't have that uh, grill on your back of Fox News, you're able to travel a little bit more. Um, and, and you've been going to countries and talking with world leaders. Um, and, and you said something, I think, that, again, a lot of folks aren't aware of, of how the country is being viewed today. Um, could you talk a little bit about some of those experiences you've had in these other countries? Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I don't want to be depressing, but it's, um, well, so I've just been locked in a studio for seven years and, and you can't, I mean, I love my job and I was, you know, obviously surprised to be fired. Um, but you know, there are downsides to having like a job five days a week at exactly the same time and you can't go anywhere. And, um, you know, it took two weeks here on vacation and, and that was it. So uh, I just decided since I had some time off and I was unemployed, that I would uh, go see the world. And I'd grown up in a family that traveled a lot. My dad was a diplomat, and so we were very aware of the rest of the world. And during the Cold War, everyone was, because there was this kind of existential fight. And, um, but you know, in the past 30 years, America's really retreated inward. But America's the beneficiary of these global systems, particularly the global financial system, um, that really make our life possible here. We have the world's reserve currency. Everyone uses the dollar, and there are trillions of dollars outside the country. And because of that, we can deficit spend at, what's, what's the, where are we at now? 33, 33 trillion, okay. So um, that's not natural, like that defies the laws of physics and the only reason that we can do it is because we have this special status as the issuer of the world's reserve currency. Everyone knows this. If we were to lose that, um, it'd be over, you know? And because of the Biden administration and the Republican leadership, Mitch McConnell and the rest of the lunatics, very short-sighted lunatics, whose time horizon is, is, is pretty crisp anyway, since they're, yeah. you know, they're aging out, um, and they don't care at all, 
uh, the th and this is not an endorsement of the Russian invasion of Ukraine at all. It's merely saying that the sanctions regime, the using the SWIFT system to punish Russia, and particularly seizing the assets of Russian citizens on the basis of no law, no procedure. We lecture the world on you know, the rule of law, we represent the rule of law and order and stability and there's a way to do this and we don't just come in and take your stuff. People invest in the United States because they know the US government, even if they don't like you, they're not gonna confiscate your stuff. You can't be punished without being convicted, okay? That's our promise to the world. And we just show the entire world we don't mean it at all. And we call them oligarchs, as distinct somehow from Bill Gates. And because they had Russian last names, they were never taken to court. And by the way, I'm not defending some Russian oil and gas potentate. Like, I don't even know their, but it doesn't matter. I'm defending the principle of the rule of law. Yes. And we violated it in front of everybody and seized billions in assets because people had Russian passports. And that sent a very clear message to the rest of the world, which is your money is not safe in dollars, period. And trade will continue and mediums exchange will replace the dollar, either commodities like oil or gold, or competing currencies. And that process is well underway. We've lost the petrodollar, like the implications of this, and I know that it's financial, so no one's that interested in cable news, but the implications of this are dire for the United States, and it's well underway, and it's happened because of poor leadership. So if you're in charge of anything, whether it's a country, in our case, a free world, or in many of your cases, a family, the number one thing you don't want to do ever, and no wise leader ever does, is incite conflict. You want to cool conflict. You come home from work and the kids are fighting. Do you immediately say, you're right, you're wrong, hit them harder? No. You say, dad's home, knock it off. And we'll figure it out later. I will adjudicate this when I have the facts. But the last thing I would do as a father of four and the leader of my household is encourage my children to fight. I stop fights, that's why I'm in charge. Got it? Yes. And the United States' role in the world was to stop fights, was to keep trade routes open, was to keep mediums exchange, the US dollar untainted by politics and passions of the moment, to be a reliable way for people to do business. And in exchange for that security that we offered the world for 80 years, we got to hold the reserve currency and print $33 trillion in money we didn't have. We violated the Biden administration with Mitch McConnell and virtually every Republican member of the United States Senate, with the exception of Mr. J.D. Vance, ladies and gentlemen, went along with the single most short-sighted, reckless, lunatic program, and it's nothing to do with Russia or Ukraine, nothing. It has everything to do with preserving our position as the world's leader. If there is a vacuum for 10 seconds, it will be filled by people with a very different vision of the world, and that is happening now. Yes like in a way that shocked me traveling abroad. So yeah, I'm very concerned. I don't think people understand the ramifications of this and this whole, this sugar high stuff, like we're on the side of, you know, George W. Bush gets out there, Zelensky's Churchill. Like I don't care about Zelensky one way or the other. He's some corrupt Eastern European, so what? Doesn't bother me at all. But when you start telling good-hearted Americans, particularly Christians who really do wanna be on the right side of history and do the right thing and be with the right side, you know, the good guy, all the Christians are all in on this stuff because they don't know. You're selling them a lie that is hurting this country in ways that you can't even imagine. And I'm very, very distressed by this. And for saying this, you know, I've been denounced as a Kremlin stooge or something by people who don't even like America and have foreign passports are telling me, as a 54-year-old taxpayer who doesn't break the law, that I, who's gonna die here and flies an American flag over my house, that I'm against America? No, I'm for America. Yeah. And anyone who's for America should be thinking about America's long-term interests in the world. 
preserve stability, preserve the US dollar, keep the trade routes open, don't make enemies unnecessarily, and whatever you do, don't inspire a nuclear war, you nutcase. So, one last question here before we wrap for the evening, and just I'll say, if Tucker's remarks and, and Bob's ask didn't inspire you to put an extra zero on those cards, this is your last chance to right here. But again, if you have those partnership cards, please stick them in the envelope here. And also I'll say, if we have not completely offended you yet tonight, I'm, I'm gonna give one last shot at it, because we're gonna talk about the presidential election here. And one last question. What's up? Okay, so the, we'll, we'll just be one more minute here. Uh, the uh, the la last question here is in relation to uh, uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, and uh, as you guys all know, we have you know we have this big abortion amendment up, but then we will have after that another election coming up right around that. And uh, the president, you know, in, in many ways was the most pro-life president we've ever had. Right? He, we got Roe v. Wade overturned because of who we put in place. He he spoke at the March for Life and declared the value of every human life. And then just last week, he criticized aware. the heartbeat bill, right? Which the heartbeat bill was passed here in Ohio. Uh, and in the two months it was allowed to be in fact after Roe, saved tens of thousands of lives, right? And so how, how do you as a pro-life voter, how do you think we as Christian voters and pro-life voters should be looking at this, this candidate right now as he's running again and, and trying to curry our votes? These are super complicated questions. What's not a complicated question is abortion. I raised my four children in, in the District of Columbia, and, and people say they're from D.C., they're not, they're from Virginia or Maryland. I raised my kids in the city. Susan Rice was my, I shared a backyard with Susan Rice. Okay, so highly political, high, it was a different time before Trump, but mostly Democrats. I've never been a Democrat. <clears throat> um, I've always had roughly the views that I have now on the social issues, um, definitely. And, uh, and, but our kids you know, went to these schools, and, and my wife is in some ways like a screaming right winger, but she's not political. And so we never talk politics with our kids. The only thing I ever said to my children, when my wife agreed, was in our house, we're pro-life, period. And I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to, as you get older, I wasn't interested in talking about politics with my kids at dinner because we live in a political city. Um, I just, well, they had enough of it. But I said, the one thing that our family believes is you're not allowed to kill people for no reason. Innocent people, you can't kill kids. Like, no one's ever called me a great person, okay? I work in the media. But even I, with my very low moral standards that I have, generally, I'm not for killing kids. Like, I can say that. And we, we said that to our kids, that that's non-negotiable. That's, non that's totally non-negotiable. Our family is opposed to abortion, period. And in this family, that's your position. And we, by the way, we're super liberal with our kids in the broadest sense, like we didn't tell them what to think, yeah. ever. Probably should've, didn't. They turned out great. But the one subject in which we told them what to think is we are opposed to abortion, period. And they're gonna tell you it's okay, it's not okay. It's not okay to kill people who haven't done anything wrong, period. We can debate whether, you know, capital punishment, guy breaks in, shoot him, whatever. I'm kind of for shooting him, but maybe you're not. <laughs> but there's no debate about killing children. And our view was, and that's my position, it's never changed. And my view was, and my wife and I talked about it a lot, if you can instill in kids that obvious truth, you are not God, therefore you're not allowed to kill people. That child, if he believes that, will wind up in pretty much the right place. That is foundational, okay? Not only in its effect, like, as I said before, 
Children are the main source of joy in your life. You want to have more, not fewer. Duh. And I'm Protestant, by the way. Even I think that. And, but it's not just that. It's like your whole worldview changes when you acknowledge that you don't have absolute power over other people. You do not possess the power of life and death. You can't make life and you can't determine when it ends because there are limits on what you can decide because you're a human being and not God. It frames the whole conversation and it frames your worldview completely different. I have limits. There are things I can't do, period. I don't care what they tell me about the coming tech age where we can create human beings with all the qualities we want. No, we can't. That is wrong. And so I feel like, I'm not sure how I feel about the term life issue. I feel like abortion. I'm against killing kids, period. And that's just non-negotiable. I've never voted for anybody who was for it, and I never will. Amen. Join me in thanking Tucker Carlson. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Narrative, presented by CCV and produced by Wessler Media. If you found today's episode insightful, leave us a review or rating and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We're your hosts, Mike Andrews, Aaron Bear, and David Mahan, and we'll see you next time on The Narrative.